0: You're listening to episode 250 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as always, by the great Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, my friend?
1: Well, I mean, it feels to me like February is never ending. Uh, does it, does it? Did it feel to you like February was just a little bit longer this year? Like, I'm not talking about, like, you know, weeks or months longer, but, I mean, it definitely felt like it was a day or two longer than normal. I don't know what's up with that, Leslie.
0: Are we really making leap year jokes?
1: <laughs> I don't know. Sure, we're making leap year jokes. Fine. Happy March, everyone.
0: Happy March, I hope ever, everyone.
1: <laughs> I hope everyone's glad to be done with February then.
0: Yeah, guess what March brings?
1: Um, the start of the baseball
0: was- season. <laughs>
1: I thought you were just gonna say lousy March weather, but uh, but yes, it is indeed the start of baseball season. Uh, you know, as Sho- Shohei homered in his first game as a Dodger, even if spring training baseball doesn't really count. But everyone still gets very excited about
0: things. Come on, so. that was cool. The guy's it was it's like sure. he's like writing his own Hollywood story. It's amazing. Come on, and he's married. He like is. he secretly got married. Like how does one of the biggest superstars in the sporting world secretly do anything? It's impressive. <laughs>
1: I don't know. I don't feel like I know a lot about what he does on a day-to-day basis when he isn't hitting baseballs or occasionally pitching them, which I think is kind of his mystique. The more we found out about what he did in his spare time, it, it would destroy the mystique. So so don't tell me anything. I know. I, Come I, I on, prefer- the
0: dog? He's, he's got a cute dog. That was cool. I he think I, cool I did
1: know about the dog. So fine. Yeah. Now I know multiple things about Shohei Otani other than he hits a baseball very far and throws it very fast, which to me is all I need to know.
0: Yeah. Well... No one wants to hear us talk about that. Well, maybe like, no. you know, 0.1% of our listenership wants to hear me talk about baseball and show hate. I think so. it's close.
1: I think it's closer to a solid 1%. I think there is a a core 1% of our demo that is strongly baseball friendly. Uh, but that does leave a, a core 99% that is perhaps.
0: Not. Yeah. So for the core 99%, we're going to move on and start where we usually do with headlines.
2: Number one.
0: 37% completion rate. Be damned. Amazon has signed Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power showrunners Patrick McKay and J.D. Payne to a new three-year overall deal that would pave the way for the series to be renewed for at least a third season.
1: Do you think someone at Amazon sees it as a bad sign that, that that show has had whatever its title is for as long as it has and, I have never heard the title, Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, and had it sound right to me. Like, it's the Lord of the Rings show, whatever it is. It's very odd to me that it has that full title. But
0: As a headline writer, you're you're taught to never repeat words in the headline and the subhead. So the Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power makes me insane every time I have to write it.
1: Oh, for sure. And uh, uh, Walking Dead did it with one of the earlier spin-offs. There was Walking Dead, Dead City, which also was uh, uh, tautological, redundant, however you want to put it. Yes, it's yeah. it was it was never a good title. I just wonder how many human beings in actual conversations are like, yo, have you watched the Rings of Power? Because no, I don't that? feel like exactly oh, the Lord I of the Rings show. Yeah, there you exactly. are, which which I then know. becomes a conversation that could be had in one sentence that they make you have in three, so yeah, well I just
0: flash back to every time there's a show with a title like this I, I flash back to one of my my first jobs out of college. I was a copy editor, and uh there was a I put a sign on my on my office door because I was at a really small publication that gave offices to copy editors, and it, it 's a department of redundancy department, which is. Great copy editor humor, and I love it, and an editor removed it from the door, which was my sign that I was not at the right place. But anyway, I moving know. on. I think,
1: I think an editor <laughs> editing your copy editing joke is probably uh, entirely on brand and journalistically relevant. So anyway, continuing along with, uh, with, with headlines, um, the first two seasons of Yellowstone, you might recall, aired on CBS as a CBS event or something, and they were- Apparently, strike programming. Well, exactly. But guess what? We don't currently, knock on wood, have plans necessarily, knock on wood, uh, for another strike. But one never knows, knock on wood. Uh, (laughs) But CBS will air another Taylor Sheridan series. uh, That would be the Sylvester Stallone vehicle, Tulsa King, this summer, ahead of the second season, which will return to Paramount Plus in the fall.
0: I mean, honestly, it's kind of smart. It's not kind of smart. It is smart. It's probably cheaper to pay residuals to to the folks who wrote Tulsa King, uh, assuming that there is a writers' room for this Taylor Sheridan show. Um, then it is. It's probably cheaper to do that than it is to to greenlight a new scripted show or a, even a new a new unscripted show because you still have to pay for all the marketing and all that other stuff. But this one, it's basically a giant one giant commercial for Paramount Plus, and oh, you're basically exposing. Smart. A, a you're bringing in a star studded vehicle in the summer where no one typically watches TV. So there's that.
1: And, and uh, as the kids say, if you haven't seen it before, it's new to you.
0: Yeah. You know, it's like during the pandemic, the, the, the gently used programming, right. When, uh, what was that, that spectrum original show that aired on Fox? Was it LA's finest?
1: Yes. I remember that, that. Was a show. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: Same idea. <laughs> uh, in casting news, Nick Offerman and Betty Gilpin will co-star opposite Matthew McFadden and Michael Shannon in Death by Lightning, the Netflix series from the creators of Game of Thrones about President James Garfield.
1: It's weird, but I am totally looking forward to that show. It's uh, I'm, I'm hard am As I said, as I said, when it was announced, it's a really fun potential premise. The source material is really good and the cast is now plus, really, really good. Uh, Continuing along, Yvonne Strahovski will hop from Handmaid's Tale to Peacock's Teacup Horror Series from James Wan. That would be Teacup. It's a horror series, not a horror series about Teacup or a horror series about the Teacup's ride at Disneyland, which I've been led to believe gives some people whiplash and other people nausea. Which one of those people are you, Leslie?
0: The latter. Nausea? The latter. Yeah. I mean, as I get older, I, I'm a Disney nerd. I love Disney, Disneyland. I grew up going there. I'm born and raised L.A. My wife and I got engaged at Club 33. We both love Disneyland. And as I get older, I cannot go on the teacups anymore. Like, I'm barely able to go on Space Mountain anymore. Anyway, getting <laughs> old sucks. Go on. Move on.
1: I'm trying, I'm trying oh, to think of Oh, my turn.
0: Up next, Shit's Creek <laughs> favorite Eugene Levy has booked a recurring role in the third season of Hulu's Only Murders in the Building. He joins other new faces, including Molly Shannon and Eva Longoria.
1: Number two. Pour one out for Che, y'all. Sarah Ramirez apparently will not return for the third series of Sex and the City revival, and just like that, uh, the, that takes a Fan quote unquote favorite out of the series. I don't know where did people end up on Che after the second season. The first season felt to me like all Che jokes out in the world, and then the second season didn't.
0: You think I watch and just like that, Dan? I don't know. I think you. Do I seem like the right demo for that show? Uh,
1: Not the directly right. I'm the right
0: demo for Sarah Ramirez. Yes, exactly. I I I I loved Cali Torres on Grey's.
1: I would have thought that,
0: and I think she's an incredibly <laughs> talented singer.
1: I think we all know that she's an incredibly talented singer. Uh, but yes, um, fine, okay. Then in that case, if you don't have information on whether or not anyone is going to be excited or sad that Che is no longer a part of uh, uh, that show, certainly it has no meaning to me. I just know that definitely there were a lot of jokes about Che in the first season, and then maybe there just wasn't. I mean. <laughs>
2: I mean,
0: spoiler alert, Che and Miranda broke up at the end of last season, so I guess it just seems a natural progression for the character to not be on there anymore. I don't know. You know, Then you've got Sada at the same time on, on uh, her social media channels saying that, uh, basically accusing, in, in no specific words, but basically if you read between the lines of her post, she's calling the producers, uh, saying that the character of Che was performative, which I mean, it was the first non-binary character in the Sex in the City-verse, if we can call it a verse, but you, you get the idea. Wrapping up headlines, this just in, S.T.A.R.S. has renewed BMF for a fourth season, with the news coming a day before Season 3 premieres.
1: Light the fireworks. There you go. Number three.
0: Up next this week, holy crap! What a busy week of series orders. Remember how I kept saying, "Oh my god, it's so slow. It's post strike. The, the air is con- everything's contracting." Well, that's all still true, but that doesn't didn't stop a lot of different outlets from announcing new series pickups. So, rather than inundate with one massive headline segment, we're going to split it up into two segments. With segment two, just looking at all the new shows that were just announced in the last couple of days. So, Dan, I'm going to start us up, but NCIS, the biggest show in the world, allegedly, is adding a new show to the franchise with news this week that Cody Pablo and Michael Weatherly will reprise their roles from the flagship series in an untitled offshoot, not for CBS, but for Paramount+. Plus. The flagship NCIS series is in its 22nd season with spinoff NCIS Hawaii in its fourth, and they already announced a new Gibbs prequel for next season, so... Yeah, NCIS not going away anytime
1: soon. Yeah, and the the handful of NCIS fans who I follow on social medias seem excited about this. So that's... Matt Minovich. Uh, pretty much, yeah. I mean, you know, sure. Yeah. He's not the only one, but Hi, he's certainly... Yes. Hi, friend of the five, Matt Medovich. He has a sticker now, too. Um, yes, I, I saw a couple other people being excited because these are beloved characters. Like, to me, this feels a lot like uh, The Walking Dead, The Ones Who Live. It's it's sort of, OK, here are these two people who, who left the show, but now they're back. And, you know, who doesn't want that CBS slash Paramount Plus money? Um, yeah, sure. Why not? You know, it feels it feels a little kind of backwards or historical that CBS is now reloading up on NCIS shows, but, you know, we, we live in a, a suits um, and syndicated, new version of syndicated world, so it makes sense. But continuing along with other various new series and... Well, I mean,
0: whoop. we're still forgetting the Eliza Dushku, Michael Weatherly flap, so... Uh, well, I mean... He is, isn't exactly the squeaky clean guy, I No, think, uh, no, I mean, allegedly we're, allegedly we're not really what
1: forgetting it. We're just pretending that apparently it doesn't matter um yeah ah bull anyway that was way, way to bring things down with that was that was the situation yeah. that Sorry. that show just kept on going and and that was an ugly thing anyway whew, okay Yeah.
0: <laughs> but it is interesting that it is for paramount plus it, it feels very much like a, a good wife good fight situation here
1: i i guess we'll have to see what the the tone is but of course the criminal minds reboot that's basically criminal minds is a is a paramount plus show and not a a cbs show so that's sort of kind of what the
0: right well we know because criminal minds plays well on the streamer so it made sense to bring back bring that show back but it's interesting because you've got three now for cbs proper but the one with the two of the franchise's favorite stars is actually going to be now for exclusively for paramount plus so I'm guessing it's maybe a little bit more expensive than a broadcast budget or maybe CBS doesn't have the shelf space. I don't know, I think, but it is it is interesting. It's just going to drive more people to watch that.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's kind of just the interplay between the two platforms and, and their connectivity. I think that that's, that's where we are. If you can get people to go back and forth, that's an added bonus. Uh, yeah, you you want people to watch both in an ideal world. You don't want to eliminate any single revenue stream, so why not uh continuing along also by paramount plus uh the streamer's showtime banner which really just sounds very very strange to say um having showtime as a banner of paramount plus um well anyway they've Oh,
0: well, it's like fx is a banner on hulu right yeah and
1: that still sounds strange to say um but it, it's confusing but who knows? Anyway, um, Paramount Plus with Showtime, Showtime with Paramount Plus, whatever it is, has ordered a spinoff of Ray Donovan. It will be called The Donovans with Guy Ritchie on board to direct.
0: Yeah, also interesting that this is going go- not going to be for linear for Showtime linear. It's just going to, I guess, right. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I don't know what, See, what Paramount Plus it's with confusing. showtime, that's or showtime all, with Paramount Plus. That's
1: all I'm saying Either here. way,
0: if it if it airs on linear, it it doesn't matter because it's all going to wind up on Paramount Plus anyway.
1: It doesn't, but it's still like it's confusing for me on a uh you know just on a when do I publish reviews level. It's it's becoming more and more confusing because things are kind of hitting a digital platform on Friday, but then they're airing on lim- linear on Sunday. And because we don't really know what the numbers for any of these things are, stop us if, if we've said that one before. It's, it, there's just no way for- 250 times before? To, uh, I think we've said it more than once per episode. Yeah. Um, but, but I. it's the problem again with data that we will always say is that all we want to do is be a little bit more informed. And we're at a point now where we simply don't have a clue anymore on these shows that premiere on Paramount Plus on Friday and premiere on Showtime on Sunday. We, we have no way of knowing who is watching shows how, and that is a tough way to to judge the health of an ecosystem.
0: <laughs> yeah, but it is, you know, in, in terms of strategy, we know that Chris McCarthy, who's the the grim reaper of Paramount, as I like to call him, you know, because every time he gets oversight of a new network, he uh, the first thing he does is gut it. Um, but we know that, part of his strategy is doubling down on these franchises, right? Like we know that there's what, three or four different billion spinoffs. There's trillions, gazillions, billions. I don't know. I, I'm making some of those up, I think. Um, but yeah, this plays into that strategy. So it's not totally surprised to see, you, you know, them revisit a franchise like Ray Donovan, but yeah, it's just weird to uh-huh. keep calling it showtime with Paramount plus Paramount plus with showtime or, eventually it's just going to be called paramount.
1: Yeah, that's Call it all paramount. that's the confusion is is the the nomenclature on any but the actual doing a spin-off or whatever of uh, Ray Donovan is actually entirely logical. I think that Ray Donovan in my mind like it's not a USA show because it was a darker show and a moodier show than a USA show, but I still kind of put the Ray Donovans of the world kind of in the same category not necessarily as the suits but I, I can see why it would be a show that would be getting rediscovered more and more now, and why they would want to expand and extend that world. Ray Donovan, always a more popular show than necessarily my perspective dictated it was.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's your uncle's favorite show. Uh, elsewhere, NBC has gone sort of straight to series on a crime procedural called The Hunting Season. The network opened up a writer's room for the project more than a year ago as part of a new development pipeline that they're using this season. So what's interesting about this to me is exactly that, how they developed it. So we know that this season, NBC is the only network making pilots. They have three pilots that they've picked up. And one of them, uh, the Jenna Bands drama, is, was also picked up in February 2023 along with the hunting season with mini-rooms or writers' rooms being opened at the time to develop a bunch of scripts ahead of a presumptive series pickup. So the hunting season got straight to series. The Jenna Bands project got a pilot order. But it is a way of letting these shows find their footing before the network devotes money into making, into either filming it or giving it a series green light. So it's a safer way. takes a little bit more time, probably a little bit more money. But there is a cost savings because you're not actually filming something. So interesting that that NBC is using two different development models and you look over at ABC they're doing they switch to year-round development not that everyone else is doing that CBS is going to continue doing that but it is interesting to see a network like NBC doing the the script to series or, or scripts to pilot process and, and multiple development models
1: heading over to series pickups on streaming, Apple has ordered 10 episodes of Neuromancer, a TV adaptation of William Gibson's seminal 1984 sci-fi novel. It will be run by Graham Rowland, showrunner of the first season of Dark Winds. Really good show. People should check it out. Zon McLaren for Emmys, y'all.
0: There you go. Over at Amazon, the streamer is teaming with the creators behind Outer Banks for the musical drama The Runarounds which revolves around the band previously featured in the Netflix hit. So the band featured in Netflix's Outer Banks is getting their own show from the Outer Banks creators, but it's on Amazon and not Netflix. Elsewhere at Amazon, the streamer has also greenlit Overcompensating, a coming out comedy series starring YouTuber Benito Skinner, also known as Benny Drama. Meanwhile, we're still waiting for word on High School, which has been in limbo for nearly a year and a half at Amazon's free.
1: (sighs) At what point do we, at what point do we just get really sad and give up the hope on that one?
0: I can't tell you how many emails I send them and calls (laughs) that I make going, what is going on with high school? They know. I know, like we all kind of know we've read, we can read the tea leaves. We're not stupid. It's not in production. It's been off the air for nearly a year and a half. No one knows what the future of Freebie is going to be. Amazon, as you've heard us discuss in a recent episode, Amazon saying nothing's changing yet, but we know that they don't really need two of the exact same services, really. So I don't know. Let's I I, I hold out hope until it's officially canceled. So there's that. <sighs> but also, good luck having an LGBTQ show at Amazon after what they did to *A League of Their Own* and what they're currently doing to *High School*.
1: Indeed. Netflix has ordered what it calls its first original medical procedural, which you think there's no way that's true, but it seems like it probably actually is, which uh, who knows? Anyway, it's titled Pulse, and it's from creator Zoe Robin and uh, showrunner Carlton Cuse with Justino Machado set to star. Netflix has also picked up Tires, a scripted comedy based on the pilot Shane Gillis, previously posted to YouTube, so... I guess they loved that Down syndrome-based uh, monologue that Shane Gillis did on last week's Saturday Night Live.
0: I watched a little bit of of that episode, Dan of of, of SNL, and woof. It, it that's my formal review.
1: It wasn't very good, um, but boy, blue check marks on Twitter loved it. So that's uh That's a thing. Um, People
0: who pay for Twitter liked him.
2: Great.
1: It was not very good. uh, As always with SNL, you're never really sure when the problem is the host and when the problem is the writers. But in any case, it did not produce a magical alchemy in which you went, oh, oh my God, he's hilarious. Now I fully understand why he was very, very briefly on the show before he was fired for being xenophobic and homophobic. Anywho.
0: (laughs) Anyways, and wrapping up this a busy week in series pickups, Ryan Murphy is back at FX with a new series called Grotesquerie, starring Nisi Nash Betts, Courtney B Vance, and Leslie Manville. Murphy shared the news via a teaser on his social media, touting the show's arrival in the fall. FX had no comment. So interesting. Top secret Ryan Murphy horror show for FX.
1: Sure. Why not? The, the real question is, did you watch the, uh, the Instagram video of Ryan Murphy's house? No. There, Ryan Murphy posted an 11 minute video tour of his house um, with, with, with uh, narration by many of his fam- favorite actors from his various shows. Uh, hell of a house. <laughs> I don't.
0: <laughs> I mean, the dude's got Glee money, Netflix money, and now Disney money a second time.
1: Uh, there is, there's no question. He's doing okay. Very impressive house. Lots and lots of philosophy behind all of the interior design uh, choices. I'm going to be honest. I could probably not live in his house. I would be probably afraid of breaking absolutely everything because absolutely everything in that house is more expensive and generally just worth more. Than I am. So. Yay.
0: Don't say that, Dan. <laughs> you are worth far more to me than anything in Ryan Murphy's house, you, including his whole house. You
1: haven't watched the video. It's a nice house.
0: I don't need to see the video to know how much you mean to me, Dan. Oh <laughs> you've never you've never hung up on me.
1: Um I guess that's probably true. Excellent. I'll take yeah. it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> on that note, up next. <laughs> That's right. We did leap year jokes to start the episode, but here we are in March and it's time for a March TV preview. Dan, I'm looking at this list that you send me over every time we do this segment and then there's so much stuff on it. But one of the things that really struck me is that there's not a lot of high profile debuts. I mean, there are a few. I'll run down those now. You've got The Regime on HBO, The Gentleman on Netflix. Obviously this month you got the Oscars. Apples Never Fall on Peacock with Annette Bening. The Girls on the Bus for Max after that thing was bounced around from the CW and Netflix. Season three of the former Peacock comedy Girls 5 Eva arrives on Netflix. Manhunt on Apple TV. Palm Royale also on Apple. That cast is incredible. One of the things I'm really excited about is X-Men 97, the animated show returning on Disney+. Then you've got probably the biggest launch of this month with the three body problem, which is the new show from the game of Thrones creators for Netflix. The other high profile releases, we were the lucky ones on Hulu, a Jared Carmichael reality show on HBO. Dan, we're both big fans of his and then Parish on, on AMC. But there's a long list of other like comedy stuff, documentary stuff, but it just really feels honestly a little light.
1: Yeah, this, this is a, a light month. And I think it's kind of, it's nestled between a a fairly big February. I think you, you know, you had, yeah, lots, lots of fairly big stuff in February. And then you're going to get to April and May, and it's going to be a lot of the pre Emmy stuff. And like, I feel like every other day we're getting the announcement of one other limited series. That's going to be popping up in, in May as, as, which continues to be strange. Like we are heading towards an Emmy season in which the drama and ca- comedy categories are going to be close to vacated and all of the competition is going to be unlimited. That is, that is going to be really interesting to talk about and, and reflect on. No, it's, it's a, uh, there are weeks towards the end of March where there's almost nothing at all premiering. And I don't know if, if there's, there are going to be secret premieres. You you never know about that, but probably not. Or if people decided to give certain shows for some reason, a wide berth, like the time around the premiere of Palm Royale and three body problem is close to empty other than those two shows. And I understand that those are two big shows. Palm Royale has this spectacular cast. There's there's no, there's no getting around how great the cast is. Kristen Wiig, Ricky Martin, Carol Burnett. I mean, Carol Burnett just held court at press tour. It was fantastic to watch. Everyone worships her because how do you not worship Carol Burnett? And she was just so happy to be doing this and to be doing this at the level she's doing it now. She totally should have been nominated for an Emmy for Better Call Saul, et cetera. So amazing cast. Three-Body Problem doesn't really have that. It's a it's a very interesting international cast, but instead it's being advertised as from the Game of Thrones guys, even though Alexander Wu is the uh, technical creator, I believe. And there's the whole question, which I don't have the answer to yet, of just how big the book is. And I don't, I don't know. I think we're going to see the book is, the book is huge. The book is huge internationally. The book is huge in diehard sci-fi circles. I just don't know how that necessarily translates. Like, is it, is it Lord of the Rings huge? Is Lord of the Rings really Lord of the Rings huge? Or is the brand the Peter Jackson? And so whatever, I'm going to be very interested to see how three body problem plays because as big as the book may be my feeling about the book having read it was that it was it, it was tailored more towards die uh, you know die hard sci-fi type people it, it you know if you just read the description the premise which is there's an alien invasion coming dot 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 um it it, it could be interchangeable with apple tv's invasion um and Apple TV's Invasion apparently is successful. We just said last week that it got picked up for a third season or two weeks ago, whatever it was. It's it's doing well. But Invasion, the the title tells you exactly kind of what it is, and that's what it is, and it's not a deeply complex series. Three-body problem, um, it, it's kind of similar in that the title tells you what it is, but if you don't know what the title refers to, it's a really complicated thing that I can't explain. And a lot of the show is somewhat similar in that what's happening is very conceptual and somewhat similar to Foundation, where, it's, where the, book, the books are, are this big idea kind of sci-fi. And they had to find a way to make the TV series both big idea sci-fi, but also entertaining and fun for people who don't care about big idea sci-fi – I haven't yet watched the show. It will be premiering at South by Southwest next week. So uh, you will see reviews starting to hit next week. It is a thing I'm spending the weekend watching. But I'm, I'm going to be very interested in seeing whether the adaptation treats it as a straight adaptation or something where they try to make it a little bit more TV friendly. Certainly the casting and whatnot suggests they're going in that direction. But like, if they do a strict adaptation, the book, the first 75 pages of the book are all about China's cultural revolution. And there's no way that that's what the series is going to be. I say that without having watched it, when it turns out that the first two episodes are all about the Chinese cultural revolution, I'll just go, oh, okay, well, I guess that was the direction they decided to go. Uh, (laughs) Otherwise, though, looking at at what else there is, there are definitely still things to be curious about or, or looking forward to. You mentioned... Uh, Gerard Carmichael reality show. That should be interesting. Sure. Why not? Manhunt is a little bit like the James Garfield uh, show. It's, it's a really good historical concept. It's, it's a really good story to want to get out there. Um I'll be curious to see how it actually plays. Uh But I don't know. I'm not I don't have built in enthusiasm for the bigger limited series this month. Uh, things like apples never fall, uh, which looks star studded, but not necessarily necessarily my cup of tea. Maybe it'll turn out to be excellent. Who knows? Uh, we were the lucky ones, good cast, powerful sh- uh, story with a Holocaust backdrop, etc. But you know how is it going to play and what the audience is. I don't know. Uh, a lot of what I'm looking forward to this month are the <laughs> are the, are the foodie type shows that people know that I like, even if I don't necessarily review them. I I tend to talk about them in in critics corner and in my newsletter more than I write full reviews. So. Somebody Feed Somebody Phil.
2: Somebody Feed Phil. Exactly.
1: Is. I will I will talk about that more in like 10 minutes, uh, 20 minutes, 30 minutes after the interview. So anyway, um, but yes, new season of Somebody Feed Phil, that makes me excited. Uh, new season of Top Chef, uh, Top Chef Wisconsin or something to that effect. I'm excited for that. Plus, it's the first season of, of Kirsten Kish taking over for Padma Lakshmi. Very, very curious to see how that's going to look. Um, there's a there's – an- And,
0: Dan, there's a show on Netflix called Chicken Nugget. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but you're talking about food, and it just felt funny. Okay.
1: <laughs> I watched the trailer for it. The reason why I put it down was because I watched the trailer for it the other day. The premise appears to be – I think it's Japanese – that a guy's wife somehow turns into a chicken nugget. No, that's the premise of the show. Wait, really? Yes, you you can. The trailer is on YouTube. The trailer looks bonkers. Like, do I think that it's a show that is going to be impacted by critical reviews? Probably not. But I put it on the list for the month because I watched the trailer and the trailer was so out of control. Like there's a scene in the trailer where a guy is going through a gigantic pile of chicken nuggets and one of them is his wife or something. And he has to figure out which are just chicken nuggets and which one is, I I don't, I don't know what the mechanism of the story is and how someone's wife or loved one becomes a chicken nugget, whatever it is, it looks wild. And it was enough to make, I mean, see, I'm just
0: reading the log line on, on Netflix right now. It says, I quote, and I quote, A woman steps into an odd machine and becomes, dot, 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 a chicken nugget? Now it's up to her father and admirer to embark on a zany quest to bring her back. Uh, Even just watching the trailer on mute, it looks incredible. I cannot wait to
1: try that. See? You you thought you were making a joke, and I... I did.
0: I really did. I thought it was going to be like a documentary, like... (laughs) <laughs> about chicken nuggets or something.
1: No, no. Nope. It looks not even close. It looks wild and whether it's good or not is almost entirely irrelevant because it definitely seems like the kind of show where <laughs> Netflix could put a picture of a chicken nugget in the uh in the little image thing on your on your on your preview screen and people would be like, ooh. So now color.
0: I mean you're you're reviewing this one, right, Dan?
1: <laughs> no comment. We'll see. <laughs> So, so far, my editor doesn't know it exists, so I'm not going to tell him, but we'll see. Uh, definitely, look, before I made this list, I had never heard of the show, and I definitely would have told you, no, we're not going to review a show called Chicken Nugget. But based upon um, the trailer and the description, uh, would I watch an episode or two of Chicken Nugget and find out what up with that? Oh, yes. Yes, I would.
0: Up next, we return to the showrunner spotlight segment.
2: Number four.
1: Our guests this week are Robert and Michelle King, who last joined the podcast back in January 2020. That would be episode 54, if you're scoring at home. When we sat down together in person during a break in the Television Critics Association press tour to discuss their simultaneous work on Paramount Plus's evil and the good fight. Plus, at that time, Showtime's your honor. The Kings are back, joining us virtually this time to talk about the Good Wife, Good Fight spinoff Ellsbeth, which launched this week on CBS. The Kings are also currently working on the expanded fourth and final season of Evil, which will launch in May, and are currently casting Happy Face for Paramount+, Plus with Annalie Ashford and Dennis Quaid already on board.
0: Thanks again for coming back to the podcast, Robert and Michelle.
2: Thank you for having us. Our pleasure. Thank you. So
0: let's start at the beginning here. When did the idea for a spinoff enter your mind? Was Elspeth an idea that came to you or did an exec kind of come in and say, you know, it'd be great if we could keep this this franchise going in
2: some way or another? Well, I'll only speak for myself. It never occurred to me we were doing a spinoff. I know that that's certainly how it's been discussed. It was really very much a separate kind of show And such a completely different world that, yes, there's Elspeth Tassioni in the center of it, but it didn't occur to me that we were trying to continue on that world. That wasn't part of my conceit.
3: And the show itself came about because over the pandemic, like a lot of people, we were catching up on TV or trying to because there were all these eight-hour movie series that were like, okay, let's watch that tonight. We can get maybe an hour or two in. And it was just like, oh, my God, can we just put on another Columbo? Can we just do something that it's not taxing? I don't need to read Dostoevsky to understand. And yet it is really witty. It is early TV wit. And it just occurred to us, the character in our wheelhouse, the one that we love so much because we love Carrie Preston who plays the part, was Elsbeth, which wasn't just then about a class issue like with Columbo. It was... Misogyny. It mixed a lot of interesting things, and we could probably shoot as in New York finally as New York, which was a good thing too.
1: So, was this a situation where you didn't have to come up with other permutations for a a potential Elsbeth series? That you just sort of knew that Columboizing her was the way to go.
2: That's exactly right. We weren't like batting around. What do we do with Elsbeth? It is oh, that's what one does with (laughs) Elsbeth
1: because we
3: were completely occupied with evil. So it was. Like, I would say the good fight was com- some, an executive coming to us. Like, we want to keep Good Wife going. And we thought we were going to hand it off to a showrunner to do. And we were going to wave in Italy or something and say, good luck with that. But we kind of got roped into that. And then Trump won. And it was just like, OK, this is fun. Let's keep going. But with Elsbeth, it was on its own. Michelle and I were just like, well, this would be fun TV. And not all TV has to be pretentious. So we kind of walked
1: Idea. And did that automatically, in your mind, make it a broadcast show?
2: Well, the structures suggested broadcast show to us. I mean...
1: Oh, no, Poker Face. Poker
2: Face. I was going to say they do a similar structure on streaming, so I suppose one can do it either way. But no, it, it, was, it felt like a broadcast show to, to me.
3: Yeah. I mean, the only problem with broadcast is 22 a year or whatever it is now. And that was the only thing frightening about broadcast. What's welcoming about broadcast is you have a definite yes at the beginning of the process and you have a definite no at some point in the process. There's not this you know, development hell of streaming, which is, oh, my God, just say no. Please just say no. Let us move on to the next thing. So there's a fun, not fun, there's an automatic start and stop date to your writing, and you get pretty quick answers. I mean, or at least... And we liked the CBS collaborators, so it was there was not really a painful thought and money. <laughs> I don't understand why reader writers don't think about network TV. This look at where we were with all these years and decades of writers getting advantages in network TV. You know, there are financial advantages to network TV that is over streaming. And I really don't know why writers don't think about that more.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's a great point. But I do want to ask because The Good Wife aired on CBS. The Good Fight was for Paramount Plus because obviously they're trying to to get more eyeballs to that service. And by eyeballs, I mean money. And then you're back at CBS with Elspeth. I mean, knowing that ultimately this show will end up on Paramount Plus, does the platform impact the type of show that you're making?
3: When you say the platform, you mean network platform. Does that influence it? Obviously...
0: Yeah, like if you're going to make it for streaming versus if you're going to make it for broadcast. Because even like with this show, you're making it for a broadcast network. But ultimately, after it airs on Linear, it's going to wind up on Paramount+. Plus. So it's even though you're making a broadcast show, it's still going to be a streaming show.
2: Right. I think we're really only thinking of it in terms of the immediate place it's being shown. I mean, so in other words, you can't really think you have the loosened parameters of streaming when the first stop is network. It's not as though, oh, I can take all the time I want. Oh, I can use any language I want. No, it's broadcast standards. So that's where we are in that. But I mean, this is not The first time we've shifted, I mean, with evil, it started on the network and then moved to streaming as its first destination.
3: I mean, look, I don't think any good fight could never be on network because it was so niche. I mean, niche. It was so, I mean, it was acknowledging there are Republicans and Democrats and our characters were mostly Democrats and they were driven crazy by the Trump years. That's as specific as you get. I don't think you can do that on network. Elsbeth is kind of interesting in that it's so acceptable to all people because Elizabeth is going to New York and is kind of catching these elites out for murders that they're committing. And so there's kind of a cool, and she's a little bit, you know, uh, Norman Rockwell-esque and she loves tchotchke. She loves little things. She loves cats. She loves, I mean, the show Cats. She loves all these things, so you're kind of laughing at her, but laughing kind of with her because she's showing up a lot of people who seem entitled.
2: You know, like Colombo.
3: Yeah.
0: Before we move on, but there are obviously going to be viewers who don't have Paramount Plus and may not have seen The Good Fight. Does it matter if viewers haven't seen that as they head into Elsbeth?
2: Yeah, it doesn't matter at all if one has seen Good Wife or Good Fight to enjoy Elsbeth. And I can say that with some certainty because they test these things. They show it to a focus group in Las Vegas and they ask folks, have you seen The Good Wife or The Good Fight? And most or many of them had not.
3: Which is a real ego boost. <laughs> when you're looking for ego boost. Yeah. I've never seen that. What is that? Was it on TV?
2: but it didn't impact how they enjoyed the show. That was the good side. And
3: I would say that was one of the things when back in the pandemic we really wanted to do with some Columbo-like show was not a show where you needed an encyclopedia to understand. Because I do think that's a lot of the superhero fatigue too is just like, oh God, just kind of Freaking, tell me a story. Preach. Preach, my friend. Preach.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What were the challenges of getting your brain back into broadcast shape? Because as you said, you've, you've obviously, you have gone back and forth, but you did get into a mode of, okay, this can be 52 minutes. Okay, we can say fuck if we want to, et cetera. Was it at all hard to get back into broadcast shape? Not as hard as I expect it. It's the five act structure that
3: kills you. Actually, if you're on one of those other networks, it's the six act structure, which is a nightmare. I mean, it's a hard thing to get your head around because, at least to us, we applied the four act structure to streaming, which prevented you from just going, okay, let's tell you know a binge watch plot and then do a cliffhanger at the end, and then that's our structure. You know, a four act structure really forces you to think: what is the major churn here? That will make the audience go, okay, I'm interested in that. What's next? So I think it's a really interesting discipline, network TV, because it really forces you not to fall into this trap where I'm going to follow characters for a while, but then I need to end with a cliffhanger that's going to tell the audience to come back next week or turn on the next one. And I think that was good as discipline.
2: It wasn't something that caused us pain or like, how are we ever going to accomplish this? It's a pretty natural place to be. And the show lends itself to it. That's the other thing.
1: Are, are there certain parts of the lack of flexibility that you miss? Like, for example, part of the fun on Good Fight was always how deep into the show will the opening titles be, and that was, <laughs> and that was the thing that people would watch for. Like, oh my god, thirty-five minutes! They did it again. Do you miss having the ability to just mess with the structure in that way?
3: Yes, I missed that, and I missed the uh, main titles that you could do in streaming. I <laughs> love having a minute just to throw visuals at the audience. You know, with Good Fight, it was the exploding things, and with Evil, I thought it was a really good one, too, which is all very sharply black and white images. Obviously, with network TV, it's like, oh, nope, three seconds you got, or five seconds. Now it's over. Move on with the show.
1: So I want to talk about the tone, because The Good Fight was a funny show, but it was also an angry show. Evil is a funny show and a scary show but it's also a show that's very uncomfortable with modern life. Elspeth is the most content of your shows that I think I've ever seen. Was that something you guys needed, like on a psychological level yourselves? I think so, but what about, I'm sorry, what were you going to say? I was
2: going to say, I don't know. It hadn't occurred to me as such. I mean, it it was certainly, the tone is deliberate. We didn't just stumble into it. We were deliberately doing a lighter-toned show, it didn't occur to me that it was something I needed personally, psychologically.
3: We're big fans of comedy no matter what. And to give Carrie Preston a stage to show her chops, her comic chops, felt like a good opportunity. You know, look, you're right about The Good Fight being an <laughs> angry show, but it also ended with an anticipation that Trump was going to come back into everybody's lives, and which then happened what was a week after we broadcast. And it was just like, eh, here we go again, that, you know, at a certain point, you have to stop yelling at the kids crossing your lawn and, you know, just watch some fun TV. So anyway, I think we have, I mean, this company, we're doing other more serious stuff, but what felt good about Elsbeth was having some
2: fun. And also John Tolens, who's going to be showrunning the series is a very witty writer. And so that felt like a, a good marriage there.
0: I'm curious, though, with regard to that tone, how did the current state of the industry impact the show that you're making here with Elspeth? I mean, one of the things that we heard after Ted Lasso connected was that buyers really did want more of that feel-good type
2: fare. Did that play a role in your thinking at all? I will just say for me, no, because we've been around long enough that You know, one minute it's, oh, no, everyone wants Ted Lasso. And 10 minutes prior, everyone wants True Detective. And the everyone wants lasts for a minute. And it's cyclical. And we don't get overly caught up in that. The only
3: thing that maybe I reacted was, I watch a lot of TV, probably more than anything now. And there's an easy cynicism and darkness that is kind of being sold as seriousness. And it really, it's part of it is just breaking the cliche. You know, Cornfield Chase and North by Northwest was breaking the cliche of the dark alley. So it's, why not? I mean, one of the reasons we pitched it, we said, we want to show the New York that people think of in postcards, not the gritty New York of people running up alleys and running over cardboard boxes. It's like, this is, would be everything that would sell New York. And so I think a lot of that is just trying to go in a
1: different direction. So, Elspeth as a character has always been a spice. She's always been a condiment to the other storytelling. Was turning her into an entree easier or harder than you expected?
3: It was easier in writing and an expectation of it being hard in execution. And so we had a lot of conversation with Carrie that way. Carrie was very aware of it, too. Like, okay, there's always a moment in the show where she and the bad guy Kind of look at each other and look into each other's souls and say, "I, you know, you're the funny one." No, no, you are funny, and there's just a sense of there's an undercurrent of something. Where is this still an act, or who is she? I mean, there's still a question. And again, I think our guide is always Columbo because Columbo is a character that wasn't meant to be in the main event, but when Peter Falk grabbed hold of it, it became the main event in a way. So I do think Carrie has that ability to turn what is probably a frivolous side into, you know, someone that you kind of want to see every week. But I don't know. I mean, we don't know. The audience will decide. I mean, we're just guessing throughout this whole thing. I mean, right. uh, We're just trying to do stuff that, okay, I'd love to watch that, but now I want to do this serious show over here. No, but I also kind of like that you're never meant to do just one thing and be one thing. Any of these, you know, other showrunners that try to be one thing, why? I mean, try to open up a bit.
1: But how much did you discover that a show built around this character can open up? Like, where did you find the limitations in terms of how dangerous things can get around Elspeth, how psychologically grounded you want Elspeth to suddenly become, etc. cetera?
2: I would say, I mean, just having had her, you know, as you put it, as a side dish on other series we were aware of the best way to maneuver for her to feel in right balance with the rest of the story. And in this case, I think the structure that we're working with is helpful. And she is plunked into a more grounded world. Not everyone is living at Elsbeth Tenor, you know, like the Marx Brothers. The Marx Brothers work better when they're at the races than they do when they're at the circus. <laughs> Similarly, I think Elsbeth is the same way.
3: And I do think the first 10 minutes sets the tone because it's usually a, well, it is a murder, uh, at least up till now. And it has a heist-like quality. And, you know, I directed two of them and it was very much, you change your camera angles and you suddenly be a little more film noir. You're not as much Buster King comedy using the frame for funny effect you are very much taking a part of almost a heist-like murder. And so that kind of seriousness allows her to play off of something. And as Michelle said, if you have Margaret DeMont around the Marx Brothers, obviously the Marx Brothers are funnier.
1: When you guys go into pitch meetings, are your pitches based on Marx Brothers, North by Northwest, Buster Keaton, or or, or do you get certain kind of dead-eyed looks these oh days when God. you go into a pitch no. meeting? From,
2: from the young, young execs that
0: are in the buying suites now.
2: We've been working with the CBS folks for... Over a decade now, and they, we all speak the same language.
1: Yeah. I love it. I just wasn't sure if there was a sort of glassy eyed expression you got from a 35 year old development executive when you started throwing some of this stuff out.
2: No.
3: <laughs> oh my God, but dude, we do sound old. <laughs> oh God. I'm only 96. I mean. It's... <laughs>
1: So you talk a little bit about finding the mixture and your shows have always, I would say, presented as star vehicles initially and then matured into becoming ensembles. And Elspeth in the first three episodes is very elspeth There are only three cast regulars, which is a very low number for a network show, but I assume probably makes people happy on a money level. But is your plan, is your dream for this by season four or five to be a ensemble like those other shows, or really, is this a star vehicle?
2: I would say, well, first of all, that's a little bit of a question for the room, Yeah, John Tones. But the way the show is conceived, this structure is what it's meant to be. I mean, one might get more of Captain Wagner and a little more of his backstory and Officer Kaya, but... It is not meant to add a bunch of series regulars and change drastically in terms of how it's structured.
3: I mean, the difficulty we're running into is if Carrie's in every scene, you can't keep that going. It can't. And we thought always the relief was the shooting of the crime because Carrie's not in the first 10 minutes. But then when you do double crews because of the way TV now works, you need to stretch an eight day shoot to nine or 10 days. Because of that, Carrie's working every day. There's going to have to be an expansion of it because you can't kill your number one on your call sheet by exhaust. That's, I think, number one rule of show (laughs) running. You can't kill the cast through exhaustion.
0: Yeah, I do have a follow, though, on that. Only three series regulars, and and look, we're in this era of contraction across the industry, and a lot has been written about how these broadcast networks, specifically in the studios, are trying to reduce the budgets on some of their big broadcast shows, right? Like the cast, you know, speaking of CBS, the cast of Blue Bloods took a 25% pay decrease
2: to get that show into
0: a final season. Bob Hart's Abishola cut back their series regular cast to literally just the people who play Bob and Shola. How much of that network belt tightening produced this show that only has three series regulars to start?
2: We were cognizant of it. We were cognizant of the economics, and in our minds, it's actually four series regulars because that big guest star of the week. We think of. I mean, of course, it's not the same person every week, but that subs in for another series regular, but we were very deliberate in when we were conceiving the show.
3: There is a reason the network TV is the way it is, though, is because you need to be able to give actors a break, not, not to keep coming back to that.
1: but So the first couple episodes have multiple Kerry Agos references. Is there some sort of Candyman-style rule wherein if you say his name enough times, Matt Zukri has to appear? on Elsbeth, or is it just wishful thinking on your part for now?
2: There is no Candyman logic, although I like that expression very much.
1: <laughs> but, but are you or are you not telling viewers with that, if you wait long enough, eventually this might be a thing that happens?
2: We are not telling viewers that. <laughs> no. Much as we love Matsu.
3: But you must know we, we're recycling actors in a way that we said we could never do on Good Fight because it's in Chicago and we want the judges to remain those characters throughout the world, you know, as if they lived outside of the TV show. But like Linda Lavin, who was on The Good Wife as like a parole officer to Carrie Agos, is now on this show as someone to be murdered. So because the actors, we went through so many actors with Good Wife and Good Fight, so many, you kind of have to be able to recycle, which by the way, Columbo did and Dick Van Dyke did, not to give you more Reason to think we're really ancient. But there is this ability to say, okay, these actors are just so good. Let them play another part. They're part of the repertoire, you know?
2: Yeah, that was a rule that we held on to very strong for 14 years. And we finally had to let go of this idea of no, if we've established an actor in one part, we can't bring them back. Again, we only, I think, broke that once.
1: I had completely forgotten that Linda Lavin existed in, in now both corners. Right? Of... <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: She was excellent in Good Fight, by the way. She was so good. Good wife. What did I say? Good fight. Good wife. Oh, good God. Okay, I do that all the time, but it's not my show, so... <clears throat> <laughs> So, okay, we started with Michelle saying that she didn't view this really in her mind as a spinoff. Then we got into you guys saying what kind of the rules are that you give yourself. So in your mind, how much is this or is this not a shared universe with the good wife and the good fight?
3: I have no way to answer that because we. I don't think this is like the Avengers universe where, okay, they probably are living in the same world but different timelines. I mean, it's New York. And she does say that she was a lawyer in Chicago. But I don't wanna you never say never because you never know what will come down the pike. I mean, you never know whether you really wanna use Juliana Margulies as a killer or something. So what are you gonna say that their Alicia Flor can't be in this show as playing another part? So anyway, that's the only reason I think I hesitate. But
2: Yeah, I mean we're trying to remain true to the idea of Elsbeth Tascioni worked as an attorney in Chicago and moved to New York. So it isn't as though she's had a memory wipe and she doesn't remember any character that she ran into. The change is that we are now taking for granted that actors that appeared as characters in other shows can appear as different characters in Elspeth. That's the change. Does that make sense? Oh, it
1: makes total sense. It's just going off of what Robert was saying with the you know Avengers and Marvel comparison. We've talked to enough of the head writers, quote unquote, as they like to be called. Oh, from... head
2: writers, <laughs> they're oh, showrunners. Call them what they are. <laughs> <Excuse> Dan, <me. laughs>
1: don't
3: I buy this Marvel movie. crap. Come on, they're coming around and calling them showrunners because they realize. Everybody else is like laughing at that. Sorry. <laughs> also, isn't this in
2: the
0: new like WGA rule where they have to identify an actual showrunner? I, isn't I that what part, one of the things
3: That's that y'all went on strike for?
0: That was a
1: win of some kind. Yeah. I said it in quotation marks to start off with, I promise. Okay, so you have all these Marvel showrunners who we've talked to on the podcast, and they talk about how they have these conversations about the people who they have access to, the characters who they have access to. And that's not an approach that you're taking Like with this. like Okay, here are two attorneys and one government figure, future senator, whatever, who we'd love to work in. You guys don't look at it that way at all.
3: Not at all. I mean, the only thing uh, was one that was fun on Good Wife and Good Fight is you would think, okay, who should enter the narrative here? In fact, one of the reasons we brought Elsbeth Tassioni back in Good Wife is the character, Alicia, needed a really good lawyer that was not within her firm because she was in trouble and she didn't trust anybody at her firm. And then in the room, we were saying, well, what about Elsbeth? We haven't seen her since season one. So we kind of brought her back, not as a straitjacket, more as, to free the the mind to go in a different direction with the narrative.
1: And we want to talk a bit about evil as well. But one last Elspeth question. And I don't remember if we did this in the good wife, good fight or not. It's not a thing that's in the first three episodes. Do we at some point go home with Elspeth? And what was the process of figuring out what this woman's apartment looks like? Because I feel like that's a a major kind of question for me.
2: I know that The Room has been playing with that a great deal, and they are figuring out what kind of New Yorker Elsbeth wants to be. And that's part of the fun That's as the series is unfolding.
3: And also, you'll see in these episodes, Elsbeth is becoming a new person because of these cases. Like Someone will redesign her look. Somebody will help her find an apartment or a different apartment. Each case seems to bring about a different part of Elspeth being turned into a New Yorker, which is fun, I think.
0: That is fun. So Paramount Plus announced that Evil is ending with its fourth season, but they also ordered four more episodes to help you guys bring it to a natural conclusion. Can you talk a little bit about what reasoning the execs had in telling you that they didn't want to do a fifth season and how you turned that into four additional episodes to conclude the story?
2: I think I would spin that slightly differently which was they really liked the show and wanted to honor it by giving it a chance to wrap up in a way that honored the show, as opposed to just cutting it off at the end of the fourth season, which certainly could have been the case. So allowing us the shortened fifth season, the four-episode fifth season, is a way to give the fans and us a sense of closure.
3: I think you guys know how this business is changing. It's a show that was doing well for them, but aging shows don't do as well as new shows because of subscription. And so it was a very good show that was doing well for them. And we're just glad that they gave us the opportunity to, because what's really odd is nine of the episodes were shot and completed before the strike. And so we still had to wait till after the strike to do the 10th episode or half of it. And so we brought everybody back in December and do that. And then we were given this ability to bring the room back together for these last four, which is a great thing because I think you'll really like the episodes, especially when you play all 14 together. That's just like going back to the way TV used to be done. It's really, I think, mammoth and its undertaking because the first episode we shot was like a year and a half ago. I mean, it's, we don't usually wait that long between the shooting and the dreaming. So it's just interesting to kind of bring it all together. I think you'll like it, but I think that is it. The economy of the business is changing, which you guys know more than anybody.
1: Well, Michelle called the last four kind of a season five to some degree. What was the approach or what is the approach that you're taking in terms of how those four episodes are going to feel?
2: Well, we have to be cognizant of it is in fact a fifth season, but it will air right after season four. So, I mean, typically a new season, people are waiting 10 months or something before it starts up again. That won't be the case. It will be the next week. So we're having to be aware in the storytelling of, yes, this is a defined period for us, the writers and creators, but for an audience, it'll probably feel like one long.
3: Like in the plot, it's the next day. You know, from the end of 10 to beginning of 11, it is the next day.
1: Had you in your mind had a sense either from the beginning or any point in the first three, four seasons of where the show was going to end? And is that where these last four episodes take you? Or is it to a different ending or a different kind of ending?
3: It is the same thing like with Good Fight, where we knew the region of the ending. And then you react to what's going on in the world. Because very much like Good Fight, evil is about... The world we're in today and the evil that we all perceive around us. It has a supernatural element, but the supernatural element might be a personification of the psychology of the show. A lot of big words just to say that we want to have our cake and eat it too. We want to comment on the evil we're all seeing in politics and the world and comment on how much of it might be a spiritual world problem?
0: In the aftermath of the, the show ending news, a cast member effectively pitched Netflix picking up the show because it definitely didn't sound like you guys were ready to, to hang it up just yet. But have you had any conversations about selling the show elsewhere for new seasons, not just licensing?
3: We yeah, have not.
2: At this point, we're just focused on making that last fifth season as satisfying to the audience and to ourselves as we can and the actors as we can.
3: It's a testament to how much actors love a working together and doing this material that was written. And it was very sweet in its way. It's also, you know, we all know that economic gods are smile and frown wherever they will. And all we can do is sit at our typewriter and Zoom with other people <laughs> and commiserate.
0: I mean, does evil feel like a franchise that could become something that you spin off the way that may have seen additional life in Good Wife and Good Fight?
2: We love these characters, so I would never say no, but that's not a conversation we've been having.
3: I mean, the bottom line is horror is not a genre that goes away. And horror with some comedy is really fun and should be fun to people. So Yeah, I mean, but we don't want to feel limited just like the good fight, good wife world to that. And we don't want to feel limited to horror because we did a show. As ancient as we are and refer to old things, we hopefully have a lot more years left to do a lot more shows because we have a lot more we want to do.
0: Yeah. And speaking of what else you guys have coming up, you're also working on a new show for Paramount Plus, Happy Face, based on the podcast, with Anna Lee Ashford and Dennis Quaid, one of my favorites. What was the appeal there for you both?
2: It's just the most fascinating story imaginable. And this, you know, Melissa Moore did the podcast and we were captivated when Jennifer Casicio, who's running it, came to us and Liz Glotzer, who also runs the company. And- she loved the podcast, said, this speaks to me. We heard it and said, oh, yes. You know, that Who doesn't want to know more about this young woman who at 13, 14 discovers that the father she adores, in fact, is a serial killer? You know Who doesn't want to know how that plays out the rest of her life? And
3: what's fascinating is the double-facedness of it, that you could be one person at home and another person out in the world killing people, you know. So Happy Face is named after the Happy Face killer, but it really is the story of his daughter. And as Michelle said, it was Jen Cursicchio's passion for the project. I mean, that's an overused word, but she just felt so in tune with it that we wanted to do it.
0: The industry, we've talked a lot about it here, is in this period of contraction after the strike. What have been the biggest changes that you've seen since returning to work after the end of the of the writer's strike?
2: Every conversation involves a discussion of budget. There's no talking about anything without a dollar sign being attached to it.
3: You're not really often, because what was always fun about TV was collaborating with people, you know, even executives. And I think sometimes the power has been taken out of the hands of executives because the decisions are all about return on investment. I've never heard the term shelf life more in my life or shelf space. Oh my gosh, it's like, you know, you're not really making TV shows or something that you have creative passion in. It's what, well, does that fit within these confines? So, you know, you get a little worried about how fun it has been the last 10 years. And twelve. Years. You look at what happened in the seventies with. Here we go back to the ancient days of the seventies when there were movies like Five Easy Pieces and there were passion projects and like The Godfather. And then did the world change on everybody? And that was no longer makeable. No longer. And you find. The same thing possibly happening in TV.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we're hearing is, first of all, not a lot of people are buying, although that's contrary to what we've seen this week because of the massive amount of new series orders that have been announced just in the last you know, three to five days. But a lot of writers that I'm hearing are out of work, room size is shrinking. And now it's like if you're launching a room, one of the things like I was curious what your staffing process was like for Elspeth, because one of the things that I'm hearing is not only is the room smaller, but it's so much more competitive for anyone who's hiring that some showrunners are being inundated with writing samples, not just from, you know, a big agencies like the CAA WMEs of the world, but the smaller management companies are also submitting like there's, you're just flooded. Any writer who's staffing a room is just being flooded with these emails, with lists of people to, to consider because so many folks are out of work and there's so much competition for the same job effectively.
2: I would say that the hiring on els we were very fortunate. It is approximately the same size as every other room we've worked with, and they are great writers. So it has not felt radically different to us. We don't do small rooms.
3: I mean, that was the great thing about working with CBS is we always told them at the beginning, going back to when AMC was creating mini rooms, that we would not do mini rooms because it's not honoring the writers, but it's also not the best work for the showrunner because they're usually left with everybody running out the door at some point because they're not being paid. And also, the more you get an executive to put money up for a show in the form of a room, the more likely they do it. The same thing that worked for movies works for T V that way.
2: Also it's the best money you can spend. I mean it's just it's a ridiculous place to pull back in spending because you end up spending triple that amount because scripts run behind and production needs to shut down. Suddenly you are walking into wild expenses if in fact you think you're saving a nickel by not spending on writers.
0: Perfectly stated.
1: So as we move towards wrapping, we always close by asking what you're watching, but first I have to skip around a little bit. Have you guys watched this week's Survivor premiere yet?
3: yes I'm there (laughs) I'm sorry I watch it live (laughs) that's how stupid I am
1: yes do you guys still get excitement out of seeing ads for your shows during Survivor because I know your fans
2: Absolutely. Yeah, and
3: I kind of like the thing they did at the bottom third of the frame which I must, everybody else must hate it but it was like, oh, look, there she is I know who she is.
1: <laughs> it's the kind of thing that NBC used to do for a while that they used to make fun of. I feel like 30 Rock used to have multiple jokes about the chirons that popped up into the screen.
3: Conan made fun of the fact that his was doing this dance on Schindler's List. You know, they were <laughs> broadcasting Schindler's List and here comes Conan across the bottom. go.
1: So other than cuts of your own shows and And of course, Survivor live every week. What have you guys been watching and enjoying lately?
3: Shogun is the best new show on. It is so good. So smart. I mean, I've only seen the two episodes, but the second episode was, if anything, the first episode, I thought, okay, this is like silence the series, like the Martin Scorsese movie. But with the second episode, you start to see all the threads come together. So I really love
1: that.
2: And Mr. and Mrs. Smith is terrific. Have you guys already seen it? Yep. Yeah, it's wonderful.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us again. We always appreciate it.
0: Thank you guys so much. Thanks so much. Elspeth airs Thursdays at 10 p.m. on CBS and streams on Paramount Plus. Evil re- will return to Paramount Plus in May.
2: Number five.
0: Up next, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Among this week's major new launches, you've got the completely made-up adventures of Dick Turpin on Apple, the new season of the recently renewed BMF on Stars, and a bunch of broadcast returns with The Cleaning Lady, Animal Control, and Alert on Fox. Dan, what do you got?
1: There is a lot of stuff this week. And some of it is really good. Some of it is stuff I really enjoy. Some of it is ambitious and and big ticket and sort of Emmy-baity and doesn't necessarily work, but we'll get to that. Um, I definitely want to start off, and I I probably could have reviewed this uh, last week's podcast to let people know in advance, but now people can watch it all on Max, so it's okay. The documentary series, three-part documentary series, God Save Texas, is probably, as of right now, the Best thing I've watched on TV in 2024, not counting the last couple episodes, for example, of uh, of Fargo or something. And, you know, I think I could get into a debate whether Shogun is better, etc. God Save Texas is really good, and particularly uh, the Richard Linklater documentary that starts it. So, okay, it's loosely based on... Lawrence Wright's book, God Save Texas, A Journey into the Soul of the Lone Star State. And the the gimmick is it is three filmmakers returning to Texas and coming to terms with the way that the state's past and their past are intertwined. So you have the first episode, which is Hometown Prison, which is a feature length documentary. I think it's like 87 minutes uh, from Richard Linklater. Then you have Alex Stapleton's The Price of Oil and uh, Ilana Sosa's La Frontera. And uh, all three are really good. The second two are, are under an hour. They're probably a little bit less effective. They're, they're kind of smaller tapestries despite being bigger stories. The Price of Oil looks at the intersection of race relations and – uh, the oil industry in Texas and so it is obviously <laughs> about about how oil companies and corporate interests prioritize uh profits over people particularly people of color and it's uh you know it's it's provocative and it's uh it's fascinating and, and all of these stories are deeply personal their personal spins on a very topical and very current story. So La Frontera is set at the El Paso border. It's uh, talking about border culture, frontera culture, and, and very fascinating in that way. I think I I definitely recommend both of the, uh, the second two documentaries, but Hometown Prison is fantastic. And it's one of my favorite things that Richard Linklater has ever done. It's his first real foray into nonfiction space. And it's basically... It's kind of uh, a Rosetta Stone type tapestry of of his material because he's basically going back to his Texas hometown and he's pointing out things that inspired Dazed and Confused and uh, and other Texas based Richard Linklater movies, but also dealing with the fact that the town slash city he grew up in, but Texas in general, how intertwined intertwined it is with the carceral industry the prison industrial complex and specifically with the death penalty and he's he's coming to terms with the way that the death penalty and prisons can fuel a town this is an industry town and the way it can kind of poison a town and poison a culture and it is it is provocative it is deeply personal he's talking with people from his past um very much an on-camera presence for richard linklater so if you you know only know richard linklater as a director it's a chance to kind of feel like you know him as a person these films are all about complicating what the collective image of texas is because a lot of people look at Texas as this very, very red state. That, because of the people who are the representatives of Texas politics your governors, attorney generals, etc. Uh, that is the image that Texas projects, and that is what Texas lawmakers tend to project. And this is a sense of what Texas really looks like in a complicated way and it's not a condemnation of texas these three filmmakers are all deeply enmeshed in the culture they love their home state this is a here is the texas you don't see here is a texas that is more interesting than what you necessarily might get if your only perspective is I don't know restrictions on abortion access or gun control or any various other things. I, I think it's a really, really good show. So um, that's God Save Texas. Uh, speaking of things that have already premiered, um, I, you just heard the Kings talk about Elspeth, and I think they did a good job of summarizing what it is. I think it is a, I think it is a brighter, cheerier television show than The Good Wife, Good Fight, uh, Evil. And I think you have to know that going in, and I think that is a direct reflection of the Elspeth Tassioni character played by Carrie Preston, played wonderfully by Carrie Preston. Uh, and it's it's a light procedural show, but I think it's a light procedural show done fairly well with really good guest stars: Stephen Moyer's in the first episode, he's really good; Jesse Tyler Ferguson's in the second episode; Jane Krakowski and Linda Lavin in the third. Uh, and and generally, just Carrie Preston is very good in this role. She does a great job of making a character who seems flighty, but who is also incredibly um, pragmatic and manipulative and just interesting as a character. And she finds a way to make the character feel real while also being the sort of character who's constantly kind of popping into frame wearing a silly Statue of Liberty hat. That is the one of the images that they're going with. And it's simultaneously wholly representative of the character, but... The character still plays decently in a version of the real world. So I think if you're looking for something that is as topical and dark as those previous shows, some of which are some of the best television of the past 20 years, uh, at least one year. Evil made my top ten, and it's consistently one of my favorite shows. Good Fight was a great show. Good Wife, I liked it a little bit less, but it definitely had great moments in it. Uh, tons of great moments. This is not in that vein. This is a lighter show. It is a more procedural show, but I think it will. I think it will find viewers. Um, so. That would be Elsbeth, which has already premiered on CBS and is available to watch the first episode on Paramount+. Plus, and God Save Texas, which you can watch all of on Max, continuing with things that have not premiered. I-, I think if you are looking for the latest contender for the Netflix effect, um, which refers, obviously goes back to various CW shows and Breaking Bad, uh, but more recently, Suits, uh, even more recently than that, Resident Alien, you know, a, a sci fi channel show that got very little buzz, but has suddenly become just much more visible since it popped up on Netflix.
0: And Louder Milk, remember and that? Louder
1: Milk got a show that, <laughs> talk about a show that basically never existed previously and has suddenly now become a show that, yeah, is just in the top 10 at Netflix all the time, which. And I always wonder with shows like this, and we'll, we'll never in a million years know this is a piece of data that that, that both – even Netflix might not have this data. I wonder with shows like this how aware the people are who find them on Netflix that they existed in another form. Like, I, you know, a show like Suits, people knew it existed in another thing. People, people don't suddenly stumble upon season one of Suits and go, ooh, look. Princess Meghan Markle has a new show on Netflix. People know that that was a show that existed. But I don't know how many people feel that way about Louder Milk. Like, oh, I remember when this premiered on DirecTV's Audience Network. I don't think people, for the most part, feel that way. Resident Alien is kind of in a middle ground because, you know, sci-fi channel exists in the world. It's in the consciousness. But I still think a lot of people have been tuning into it as if it was a thing that didn't exist before. Uh I think this week's interesting test case on that is going to be The Tourist, uh, which aired on Amazon in its first season. And I, I felt like some people kind of were aware it existed, but it wasn't uh, – or was it Max? Now I don't even remember. It might have been Max. Whatever it was, it aired somewhere else. And it wasn't wildly successful, but I think people knew it existed because – you know, Jamie Dornan is is kind of a, a specific type of movie star. He's not a big star, but I think some people really love him, either from the Fifty Shades movies or, uh, you know, other various different things. But it didn't make a large cultural impact. I think it's very possible that it might suddenly now do that. Because the first season has been on Netflix for a couple of weeks and it's been kind of reliably in the top ten. I like to glance at their top ten, even though I don't have a clue what it means. Uh that's, you know, sure, why not? Uh <laughs> but it absolutely feels like the kind of show that people are going to find on Netflix and have no idea that it existed anywhere else, and uh are just gonna are gonna dig it. It's a very juicy, high concept. Uh, premise. The the first season's premise is dude wakes up after a car accident in a small town in the Australian Outback with no memory of who he was and suddenly people are trying to kill him which suggests something about who he was. Uh, the, the whole premise of the first season builds to the idea that maybe he discovers he wasn't such a good person and we we've watched him for six episodes thinking he was likable or lovable and maybe he wasn't. The second season takes the action from the Australian Outback to Ireland, which means different set of beautiful locations. But I still miss the Outback. But uh, Ireland is lovely, too. And he's getting closer and closer to figuring out who he was. And who he was turns out to be darker and darker as it goes along. Very twisty, very... Um, Irish crime family E. And the show is all built around Jamie Dornan being extremely both hunky but also funny and being very good at that, and and how great Danielle McDonald is as the aspiring Australian police officer who who falls for him over the case of over the course of the first six episodes and continues to be over the next six. I, I thought that the start of the second season was a tremendous amount of fun. It was, it was twisty. It was entertaining. It was very, very funny. Lots of very good Irish guest stars. um, Some of whom you'll recognize some of whom you won't, but just a really good cast. Like with the first season, the actual answers very rarely were as satisfying to me as the, the mystery and the process of trying to unfold them. Uh but it's a pulpy show that has a very good sense of its limitations. It rarely tries to be more complicated than it it is. It doesn't try to be more thoughtful than it is, it just tries to keep the plot moving, keep things twisty, and keep its actors in the forefront. And I, I think it does a very good job of that. Uh by the end of the the second season, like with the end of the first season, I didn't completely buy where it was resolving, where things were heading, but I feel like it does like with the first season, it sets up a second season. Uh, The first season set up a second season. The second season, I would say probably sets up a third season. And uh, I can easily imagine this becoming a big show for Netflix. Again, whatever that means, who knows? I can imagine though, this being, a big Netflix effect show. Um, And then continuing along at Netflix, and there's very little to say about it. Somebody Feed Phil is one of my favorite shows on TV. I I love Somebody Feed Phil. uh, uh, Phil Rosenthal, creator of Everybody Loves Raymond, is just a a great and likable host if you like the thing he does. I do know people who, who find him unbearable, and that makes me a little sad because I find him lovably charming, which is what he goes for. Um and this season is 8 episodes. Previous seasons have been either 5 or 6. And uh, yeah, I I love Somebody Feed Phil. So really continue consider this to just be a uh public service announcement if you didn't know that Somebody Feed Phil was back. Now you do. Continuing with the weekends premieres, um you also have The Made-Up Adventures of uh, the Completely Made-Up Adventures of Dick Turpin, which stars Mighty Boosh star uh Noel Fielding who I've been led to believe lots of people know from the Great British Bake Off which just happens not to be one of the food related shows that I have any affection for but I know lots of people do which is totally fine. Uh so it is the it is the completely made up story of a very real British highwayman named Dick Turpin. Uh but it's completely a comedy. It is a wacky comedy. I think the Temptation is going to be to compare it to our flag means death uh kind of lovable ragtag bands of of criminals uh and what I will say is I thought the completely made up adventures of Dick Turpin was much funnier than our flag means death it It made me laugh pretty consistently. It is a very good mixture of. Silly British humor and smart British humor. I think I think it balances those things extremely well. I think Noah Fielding very funny. Supporting cast is is a blast. Uh, Hugh Bonneville's having a lot of fun. He's very good. Ellie White is very good in a supporting role. There's a lot of Highwaymen and Highway Women. Uh, there's they're coming out this spring for whatever reason. There's a Disney Plus show from Sally Wainwright that's coming in March that we we didn't mention. Uh, that is also a a highwayman show. I'm not completely sure why that is a thing that we're doing. Maybe it's the new murder mystery. Uh, <laughs> it's this month's version of murder mysteries. So, yay. I-, I laughed a lot at it. What it is missing is the core relationship that made people love Our Flag Means Death. And that is not a small thing to be missing. People really flocked to Our Flag Means Death in large part because of the love story at the center. And that was, for me, always the thing that was most effective about the show or the most effective about the show from once they started doing it. And and this misses that. This absolutely is much more, you know, being silly and funny and silly and funny and silly and funny, bringing in um, guest stars who are fantastic if you are a fan of, of British television. So people like uh, Jessica Hines, um, Diane, uh, Philomena Kunk Morgan is, is in one episode. Connor Swindells, who people will know from sex education and from Barbie is in multiple episodes. Dolly Wells, bunches of people who are really, really funny, funny British actors are are here. And it's, um, again, I laughed at it fairly hard at times, didn't feel much for it. So you can decide if that's a thing. Also, this is an easy one. You'll you'll absolutely be able to tell fairly early on if the if the foppish British tone, and it's very much from a Monty Python, Black Adder, you know, just generations of British type humor. It's you, you you know you know what it is when you see it, and either you will laugh at it in the beginning or you will not. I did. And then last of the things I'm talking about this week is probably on some level, the biggest of the things premiering this week, and that would be The Regime on HBO, which premieres on March 3rd. And it stars Kate Winslet as the head of a crumbling authoritarian regime in an unnamed Central European country. Uh, It is created by Will Tracy, who was on the writing staff of Succession and also co-wrote The Menu. Um, so this is one where my review is tepidly positive on the series, but extremely positive on Kate Winslet. Kate Winslet has a has a great part as this woman who is constantly either manipulating or being manipulated. And She's fantastic. She, she gives every bit of a not very good character arc real value to it. And I think that it is always fascinating watching her at work. I think that she's had a lot of her best roles in the past 15 years on HBO limited series, whether *Mayor of Easttown, in which she was fantastic, also great series, uh, Mildred Pierce, in which she was fantastic very, very good series. The series here though, I don't think is honestly very good at all. And I think the series around Kate Winslet's performance is getting worse for me. The more I think about it, it's one of those things where a performance will grab you immediately and it will stick with you. And apparently it will stick with you long enough to write your review. But, uh, as you think back on the show, a lot of what you think back on is what the show is saying, what happened on the show, what it means. And a lot of the satire here is very flimsy. It is it is like, okay, fine, authoritarian regimes are bad. I don't need a TV show to to give me that scathing perspective. It's, it's not connected enough to reality to be smart in that way. And it's not whimsical and distanced enough from reality to be effective in that way. It's just kind of stuck in the middle. Uh, Kate Winslet is great. A lot of the supporting performances are are fine but underused. I really liked Andrea Riseborough, who plays the palace manager type thing. Uh, She's got this wonderful sour expression the entire series. I found her very funny. Hugh Grant has one great episode playing the main character's political rival, but it's only one episode. Martha Plimpton plays a visiting U.S. Senator. Martha Plimpton is always great in things, but it's only one episode. The supporting cast, like there are a lot of people who kind of come and go and don't even have names. Like she's got this whole group of advisors who are played by top tier British actors, all with RSC backgrounds, basically, who don't have characters and don't have personalities. So I don't. I don't think that Kate Winslet's performance is going to diminish any in my mind, but the series isn't giving me a lot to, to stick with. And so, yeah, just, just go in with expectations. This is not Succession. This is not on the level of Succession. This is also not on the level of Mare Town or Mildred Pierce. But look, watching six hours of Kate Winslet doing her thing is, to me... That's worthwhile, but if you're waiting for it to find a different intellectual or even comedic level, like it's funny, but is it? Ha <laughs> ha funny. No, it's really not. Um, so yeah, just adjust expectations, I suppose. So to rehash, God Save Texas, I think it's excellent. Hometown Prison, directed by Richard Linklater, is a special 90-minute movie. Very worth watching, both in general and especially if you're a Richard Linklater fan. Somebody Feed Phil, always one of my favorite shows. Elsbeth, a cheery, uh, but not necessarily that deep spinoff from a show that uh, was more angry and dark and nuanced. So you can see it as a palate cleanser. I think that's how it works. Um... Somebody Feed Phil, always love Somebody Feed Phil. The Tourist, check it out. If you were aware it existed before, uh, the second season is as good or better. If you weren't aware it existed before, I think you'd probably like it. I think we're about to see Netflix push the hell out of that show, and it would not surprise me to see it become extremely popular. Completely made up adventures of Dick Turpin, made me laugh, didn't necessarily make me feel. Is that a bad thing? You'll decide for yourself but it did make me laugh. And The Regime, Kate Winslet, is very good. The show around her, a little bit disappointing. Deep sigh.
0: For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark thr.com slash tv dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast.
1: Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review thing. Those suckers help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on social medias. We're still there, somewhat. Different places, different times, etc. Leslie's making a face as if to say, not much at all. But, you know, come say hi. Leslie is, as always, at snoodit with two O's. I am, as always, at the fine print, F-I-E-N. But if you have questions for future mailbag segments, and we've got a couple uh, that have started to trickle in, but it might be time soon for another mailbag segment, you can email us at tvstop5 at THR.com. That is TV's Top TVstop5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie.
0: Until next week, Dan, and happy 250.
1: Same to you.